Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In the spring of 1922, in Paris, Albert Einstein and Henry Bergson had a debate. The fact that Einstein's is a household name today, and Bergson a figure virtually unknown off of university campuses, should give you an idea about who was thought to have won. At the time of the debate, Bergson was widely hailed as the preeminent French philosopher of his day, and Einstein was a newcomer on the scene that hardly anyone knew. This, however, was the 20s, the time of flappers, nouveau riche, and Joycean wordplay. It was an era that seemed almost monomaniacally bent on outing with the old and ringing in the new. I can imagine that even then, at the height of his fame, Bergson came across as somewhat quaint to his audience, with his famous analogies of melting sugar cubes, flying arrows, and mechanical clocks. He must have felt light years behind. Einstein's science fiction world of ghost stars and time-traveling spacefarers. Small wonder, perhaps, that almost everyone, Einstein included, completely missed his point. That point was that the idea of a space-time continuum was inadequate to the reality that we humans actually experience. According to Bergson, Einstein imagines a flow of time which, unbeknownst to him, presupposes a deeper time that cannot, for its part, be described as relative, it must be absolute. The name that Bergson gave to this deep time, which everyone experiences directly, but which also defies thought because all concepts presuppose it, was durée, or duration. Duration is the time of life, the time of becoming, the time that each of us intuits as the most fundamental reality. Although Bergson agreed that relativity was perfectly suited for measuring events within duration, he thought it could say nothing about duration itself, since duration is the sine qua non of all human experience and of all science experiments. Henry Bergson has come up more than once on Weird Studies. Today, we devote an entire episode to one of his seminal texts, Introduction to Metaphysics. In doing this, we are unfurling a strand of Weird Studies DNA, since this text was one of the first things Phil and I considered discussing on a podcast before we'd even come up with the concept for this show in 2017. My, how time, or durée, has flown. Anyways, we hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, we hope you'll have the time to drop us a word and let us know your thoughts, or even maybe support us on Patreon. I guess only time will tell. Enjoy the show. in your office i am i'm i'm excited about that i'm happy about that uh never thought i would miss my office quite so much 
Yeah. When the university decided that they would allow people with a demonstrated need to use their offices again, I was one of the few people, I think, in my building, at any rate, who asked. And so it's a little eerie. I come in uh, most days now, and it's just empty. It's like the zone. It's just easier to record in here. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You live with three musicians. Yes. And I don't have people like bursting into loud laughter outside my door or running the copier or stomping around over my head. There's just nobody here. So yeah. Fantastic. Yay. And um, yeah, today we're doing uh, Henry Bergson's Introduction to Metaphysics, which is a text that Phil and I have been talking about since 2016. 16, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the very first idea either of us had for doing a podcast was you suggesting that we do a one-off podcast on this text. Right. I think your original idea was that we would release it through like Reality Sandwich or something like that or, or me uh, metasoc Metapsychosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just suggest that we do this one-off thing, uh, which we never did. Instead, we put together a whole show. Yeah, and, uh, about everything we, but. <laughs> about everything but, yeah. This, so this is just like 2001. It's one of those too big to talk about kind of texts. Although it's ridiculous. It's not too big to talk about. No. We've been, we've been talking about it from day one. We just haven't always been naming it. True. Rereading it, I'm just like, oh my God, this is so absolutely fundamental to the way we talk about stuff. I think... I have different things to say about it now than I would have two and a half years ago. Um, thanks wow, we'll thanks to this show, yeah. So, well, we'll never know what I would have said two, two and a half years ago, but I have a feeling that what I'll say will be different from what I would have said <laughs> two and a half <laughs> years ago, which to me feels significant. Um, it's uh, so. Should we start with a little bit about Bergson in general? I mean, we don't have to. We'll do. We'll do some in the in the intro. Um, well, I don't I know that much about him, so why don't you tell us something about Bergson? Well, what can we say? I mean, he was a French philosopher. Uh, he was huge in the early 20th century. He was packing auditoriums. He had groupies. He, uh, he was at the Collège de France in Paris, and he just packed rooms with his lectures. People loved Bergson. He was the, in a sense for me, he represents the kind of like apogee of fanciac philosophy, you know, hmm. the kind of the, the first effervescence of like the process philosophy movement with, he, yeah. he worked closely with Whitehead. They wrote a, a book or two together at the beginning. He was uh, just huge. And what happened was that um, a couple of things happened. Uh, he had a famous, infamous debate with Einstein, which he, um, according to the critics of the time and the people who attended, and at least the press, uh, decided that he had lost this debate. Um, I think now there's people are looking at it again and rethinking the terms of the debate, because I think that a lot of it was based on a huge misunderstanding of what, where Bergson was coming from. And then, of course, uh, existentialism, like World War II happened, existentialism took over in France, Heidegger and Husserl, and those guys started exerting their influence on the French intellect, uh, leading to post-structuralism and all that stuff. And Bergson, he fell out of favor um, with almost everyone. 
just a few exceptions, one of whom was Gilles Deleuze, who, of course, is basically a Bergsonian. Basically, what Gilles Deleuze was doing is continuing the work of Bergson. There are some early letters of the, a very young Deleuze writing to Bergson, and they're very, really? very cute letters. Yeah. Oh. And um, just full of admiration and trying to get to his thought and also trying to establish a connection between Bergson and Nietzsche, which Deleuze thought existed. But of course, Bergson didn't like Nietzsche at all. Yeah, he didn't see himself as uh, being in any way aligned with Nietzsche because Bergson was very much a gentleman of the time. Like, you know, he was like a, a respected tenured professor working within the institutions, within the established tradition. And Nietzsche was a bit of a bit of a maverick off on the fringe writing, you know, insane um, ramblings. And that's how Bergson saw him. But I, I think that one thing that might, you know, come clear today is the affinity between Bergson and Nietzsche, maybe. And this particular text is uh, kind of a fundamental, almost a kind of precis of Bergson's entire philosophy. Although you could say that about half his writings because he tends to repeat himself constantly <laughs> from one <laughs> book to another. It's really hard to remember where a certain passage comes from because he would he really had a kind of central intuition that he just kept hammering at, just trying to get it through and bringing up the same examples time and time again, but always a little clearer, a, a little bit more, with a little bit more detail or nuance. And he was really building something very, very specific. And so this text, I think that it just kind of captures the essence of what he was trying to communicate, you know, and it's in a way he kind of, you know, you, you'll, you'll hear people categorize 20th century philosophy or modern philosophy in general. Uh, you have existentialism, you have phenomenology. Bergson is really kind of on his own. Uh, he's really hard to fit. Um, now we say that he's a process philosopher and we kind of associate him with people like William James or um, uh, Whitehead. But of course, uh, at the time, there was no, th th these, these philosophers were, they were perceived as kind of reactionary. They were reacting to the dominant movements, reacting to phenomenology, reacting to positivism. Right. And uh, so they, they, they kind of, they didn't really form as cohesive a group. And in fact, it's very hard to see to get them into dialogue with one another because in a way they're so close and in another way they're so different. It's, I think it's very hard to combine. Like it's really easy to look at Camus and Sartre and Heidegger and see how it all works together, right? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do Bergson next to Whitehead next to James because they're saying almost the same thing, but there are some fundamental differences. The style is very different. And so Bergson was kind of a sui generis, a kind of like a lone wolf within the philosophical establishment, even though he totally dominated it for a long time. Um, and now, of course, there's a big resurgence of Bergsonian uh, scholarship, apparently. Uh, a lot of scholars have become, have, have rediscovered Bergson, largely thanks to Deleuze, and, um, and for really good reasons. So, yeah, that's, that would be a, how I would kind of frame this particular text. Any preliminary remarks from your end? Well, you know, my relationship to this text is going to be not so much thinking of it in terms of like currents and contemporary philosophy or connections you can make between Bergson and Deleuze or Nietzsche. Um, I'm not thinking so much in terms of how he might play into the history of philosophy as I am how he plays into my own 
sort of pet preoccupation, which is Zen. And I forget if I ever said this in our email exchanges, but maybe I did, maybe I didn't. It struck me with great force this time through this essay, reading it this time, how extraordinarily well this reads, not as a sutra, not as a religious text, but as a statement of what it is that Zen and its method are about, what exactly does it mean for people to be sitting in silent contemplation for years? What would the point of that be? The thing that's motivating this particular, we would say, religious practice. The Heraclitus episode we did, which was ages ago, it was one of our earlier episodes, and we did it right around the time we also did the Dogen, Genjo Cohen episode. In both of those, we spent a fair bit of time asking, what's the difference between a religion and a philosophy? Right. And we were realizing that, you know, when you go back to previous eras, you know, the ancient Greeks or even the pre-Socratics, particularly when you get to somebody like Pythagoras or Heraclitus, are their writings religious in nature or philosophical? It really seems like kind of a... Or magical. Yeah. Or magical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it seems like the wrong question, or at least trying to fit them into one category or another, you suddenly realize how much those are our categories, not necessarily others. Same with Dogen. He was a religious figure, of course, the most important figure of Soto Zen Buddhism. But I remember, I think it was in the Heraclitus episode, we entertained the thought experiment of imagining like 800 years from now in the sci-fi future, there's a religion based on the writings of Martin Heidegger. And you were like, yeah, I could imagine that. It could be a very nice religion, one that involves like long walks in the woods and living in a mountain hut, perhaps. I mean, that all sounds rather Zen, doesn't it? Right. Uh, anyway, these kinds of thoughts were recalled to me as I was rereading this essay. It struck me more forcefully this time than previously. The basic distinction he's making is between two forms of knowledge. And one he calls analysis and the other he calls intuition. And he says right from the beginning, um, I will read, this is the T.E. Holm translation. I'm not sure if there are any other translations in English. Yeah, but there's at is, least one because I think I have a different one. I, I like this one. He says, this is his very first paragraph. A comparison of the definitions of metaphysics and the various conceptions of the absolute leads to the discovery that philosophers, in spite of their apparent divergencies, agree in distinguishing two profoundly different ways of knowing a thing. The first implies that we move round the object. The second, that we enter into it. The first depends on the point of view at which we are placed and on the symbols by which we express ourselves. The second neither depends on a point of view nor relies on any symbol. The first kind of knowledge may be said to stop at the relative. The second, in those cases where it is possible, to attain the absolute. Yeah. And back, in, back when uh, we were writing each other about this, uh, actually, I might read from the email that I sent you. So I wrote a bunch of stuff and then I went and got up and went to the piano and played for a while. And then I went back to my email and I wrote to you. So since writing that last bit, I got up and practiced this Haydn sonata I've been working on. 
One thing that's been rekindling my interest in playing piano has been the unlikely fact that I have lately taken up boxing. I guess you and I didn't know each other quite so well back then because I'm talking about uh, boxing like, believe it or not, this yeah. weird thing. But anyway, um, and I say, believe it or not, <laughs> you could t you can always I can always tell when I'm rereading my correspondence when I'm feeling uncomfortable about something. Right. I, th I think at this early stage, I was like, I don't want... J, this my new friend JF to think I'm some bloodthirsty freak. You didn't know me at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was very impressed. Uh, but in any event, so I can tell there are these tells in my writing that uh, that are like verbal written equivalents of a squirm of discomfort. So I say, believe it or not, boxing and piano playing have a lot in common. Both are sciences of weight transfer through striking. With the piano, it's the finger striking the keys, while with boxing, it's fists striking a bag. Anyway, I was really getting into the technique of playing this one fast scale passage just now, working off the notion that it's not just weight transfer, feeling the weight of the hand and arm through one finger after another as they strike the notes of the scale in rapid succession, but a dialectic of weight transfer with the autonomous striking motion of the fingers themselves. This is kind of like boxing. I'm having trouble with my jab because this punch is both a kind of on-guard forward lunge of the whole body and a coordinated flick of the fist out to the end of your left arm's full extension with a whip crack split second stiffening at the point of impact. All these different things happening, not in sequence, but simultaneously, or not actually not even as different things happening, quote unquote, simultaneously, but as indissoluble parts of a single movement involving the interdependence of the whole body. Anyway, it occurred to me that even now, as my pianistic technique lies in shambles, which is true, my plane ain't what it used to be, I can still play the piano with a kind of science, as in the sweet science of the technical boxer, that allows me still, after all these years of neglect, to play piano with some degree of professional skill, to rip off a scale in the same way that the coach of my boxing club, who has not fought professionally in decades and is in nowhere near fight shape, can still throw a jab with a clean, unself-conscious technical perfection I will never approach, even in a dream." How did I get to the point of being able to do this? Or for that matter, how did the coach manage to do what he does? How is it that I know how to practice scales in this sophisticated and esoteric way, balancing very tiny adjustments of weight and impulse, not so much through intellectual calculation, but with the intelligence of my whole being? Well, the way I do that is with difficulty. It took a long time and a lot of failure before finally getting it. It is extremely difficult to teach this feeling for movement and similarly difficult to learn it because the teacher has to describe it in concepts. And yet the reality of the movement is in the movement, not in the frozen and partial abstractions that we must necessarily resort to when we're talking about movement. All the teacher's analytical concepts for the movement converge on its reality, but they are not identical to it. What is needed is a small leap over an infinitely wide gap between concepts, the outer relative perspective on movement, and the din an sich, the thing in itself, entering and inhabiting the movement, embodying the movement, being the movement. The teacher will use all sorts of metaphors. It's like you're rolling an orange in your hand, for example, to convey the sense of weight transfer, for instance but you'll never get it until you feel that rolling movement of weight transfer yourself, until you move from analysis to intuition, to put it in Bergsonian terms. 
Right. And, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, so jumping ahead a little bit, so this inhabiting yourself thing has to do with there being no difference between the thought pertaining to the action and the action itself. If you're playing a relaxed game of catch and the ball is thrown to you, you don't say, I am now raising my right hand to catch the ball at approximately 155 centimeters from the ground and 50 centimeters in front of my left bicep, which will require a leftward rotation of my torso by some 30 degrees, etc. If you do, you'll almost certainly drop the ball. When you're in the zone, that state where you feel the ball pulled toward your hand as if by magnetism and you feel as if you can't put a foot wrong, you just catch it. The thought of catching the ball and the act of catching the ball are one and the same. You just do it. The Nike slogan, just do it, is actually pretty apt for characterizing these kinds of athletic flow states. Zen meditation is after the same thing, and indeed a lot of the people who take to it are musicians. At least that's been my experience. In Zen practice, you're seeking to extend this kind of full inhabiting of the self into your everyday life. Hence ritualized forms of eating, walking, etc. that you practice while on retreat. To put it in Bergsonian terms, it's jumping from analysis to intuition, from the infinite number of snapshots or perspectives or points of view on the thing you're after, you know, just ripping off a nice scale or firing off a nice jab. Um, there's a thousand and one, a million and one, a quintillion and one things I could tell you about all of the little things you have to do to throw a good jab or to play a good even scale. But those things still will lead you to a kind of a gap, infinitely wide, uh, and yet that you can, under certain circumstances, leap right over, where you go from all of the approximations and to the thing itself, and that thing itselfness that Bergson is on about, that I take to be the true subject of this essay, it's also really the true uh, matter at stake in Zen practice. So sorry, that was a long-winded way of getting back to why I'm constantly thinking of the Zen tradition when I'm reading this essay, but uh, yeah, that's, what, that's what I was thinking. thought of Zen too, as I was reading this, um, this time around, because like, just to lay it out, um, you, you've just illustrated it beautifully. Um, Bergson is, is working at a particular philosophical problem, 
which is how to break out of the kind of like uh, deadlock of contesting philosophical, metaphysical schools, right? So he lived in a time where, much like today, where there were two major ways of looking at reality. One is that reality is fundamentally mental, and the other way is that reality is fundamentally physical. The fundamentally mental way of looking at reality is called idealism, and the its its opposite or its its rival is f- uh, physicalism, or in that time realism, realism in the widest sense that there is something real, and then the mind perceives that real thing. So, people often say materialism to mean that complex of ideas as well. Yes, yeah, but materialism has. Yeah. So there's materialism, physicalism, realism. They're all kind of just within that. They're all basically realist philosophies. Materialism and physicalism are realisms. So he's trying to get through that. He's trying to get out of that. And that was kind of his his problem, uh, the problem that he tackled over and over again. And what what he is saying in this essay is that whether you're a materialist or an idealist, you're making the same mistake you're mistaking symbols, and here we're using symbols in a very different sense from the sense we were using it uh, in in uh, in our Jung, like the Jung, in, episode, in the Jung yeah. episode, where the symbol is kind of an aesthetic event. It's not the same thing. We're talking about the symbol as in the way that we usually uh, mean when we use that word, which is like a token, something that represents something else, right? Yeah. So we use symbols, and we think that by adding up enough symbols, we can get we can reproduce the thing it represents in our minds. But of course, what you were getting at there is that it doesn't matter how many concepts or symbols I I accumulate in my effort to understand what a great jab in boxing is, I will never, ever, ever reach the actual event, which is the jab. And I think Rickson would go even further. He would say that every jab is, even to call it a jab, you're already in a conceptual Yeah, absolutely. There is no such yeah. thing as a jab that then repeats itself uh, in an identical way in the world. Like there are things that resemble one another enough for us to come, come up with a concept like jab. But mm-hmm. of course, reality is that which escapes all conceptualization. So what Bergson is saying is that reality is basically a flux of becoming. You know, he's, he's a Heracleitian. He's all about becoming. And what he's saying is that modern uh, philosophers, and because of modern philosophers, modern scientists and modern people in general, tend to not perceive reality. We don't perceive reality the way it's made uh, or the way it is. What we do instead is we project our concepts onto reality, and then we mistake those concepts for the actual things that compose reality. He has some great examples. I mean, one example that's really actually very simple, easy to understand, and kind of makes his point is the the uh, example of an arrow, uh, the arc of an arrow as it flies across, you know, a, a, a space. Imagine somebody firing an arrow into a target within a big gymnasium or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, for me, I'm seeing an arc like a longbow, like a Welsh longbow firing yeah. onto a French knight. So, okay. so that's, the, a more, that's a more vivid image. Let's yeah. go with that. So the arrow arcs overhead and falls. So the arc, that you can see the movement of the arrow. Now, the way we think of it usually is that we think of the arrow as a static object moving across a particular expanse of space. And so we divide up that space into uh, a multitude of 
static points. And we think, oh, the arrow moved through all these points, it reached its apex, and then went down and hit its target. So we, we split the movement up into uh, fixed uh, points, and that's how we calculate the amount of space and the speed and the time it took or whatever for this arrow to go from point A to point B. What we're doing is we actually have to take movement, the movement of the arrow, out of the picture. What we're doing instead is we have a series of static points and a series of static arrows, which we imagine at each point along this arc so that we can reconstitute the movement in our minds. But the real movement itself is, a, is an all-at-once thing. It's exceedingly what he calls simple. The arrow never remains static in any one point. It's always moving between two points, and you can multiply the number of points infinitely. And yeah. so you end up with Zeno's paradox, where if movement occurred according to uh, a, a, a clear succession of static states, then movement would never begin, because uh, even the first point would be infinitely divisible. So... We think about movement wrong. We think about change in the world in a wrong way. For instance, I feel joyous. And then later on, I feel fearful. And I think that, oh, I was so happy and now I'm so afraid. But in fact, neither of those emotions is actually extractable as a kind of like clear, coherent unity to begin with. And the movement from one to the other is, is not... Uh, clearly discernible either. Things are shading into one another constantly. Everything is in a state of becoming something else. And we can't actually think of reality in those terms. The only way we can think of reality using our you know, cognitive equipment the way we usually do is to split the world up into static fixed states and things and, and then compare them to one another. And the minute we do that, we've already lost the real. And I guess Zen practice could be an example of a technique for connecting to what Bergson calls duration, which is his name for the real, this kind of primordial time that's always happening, always going on, that is uh, impervious to conceptualization, that happens before the intellect steps in, and that is uh, a kind of all-at-onceness of the universal becoming that is reality. Yeah. And so... That, that's what he's trying to get at. So it, 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 it's very hard to read this essay without seeing a kind of hint of mysticism in it. And in fact, Bertrand Russell's great critique of Bergson is all about, well, there's nothing to say about reality for Bergson. It's completely outside of the thinkable. And so he's, there's no way to um, argue for or against what he's telling us. We just have to take it on his word that outside all possible thought, there is this thing called duration that no one can ever access, that no one can ever touch, and that is actu the actual reality. And of course, um, that's exactly what someone like Dogen is saying. Yeah, you have to just stop yeah. thinking to experience the real. And so I think it's very easy to make the Zen connection, even though I think that Bergson would probably object to a particularly overly contemplative take on Zen, where Zen is basically the shepherd gazing at the water. At one part in the, in the essay, he says, well, are we just reduced then to just gazing passively at reality as it passes by? And he says, no. He says, uh, uh, intuition is super active and engaged and creative, which is also the way that you, for instance, portray Zen. You don't portray yeah. it as a kind of passive contemplation or nihilistic. You see Zen as a much more engaged um, practice. And, that's, and Bergson, I think, would see it the same way. Well, he has a wonderful line in here 
And because I'm working off of a, just a PDF download of whatever is in Project Gutenberg, uh, I don't have a page number. He says a true empiricism, and he's compar comparing the empiricism he means by empiricism uh, with a faulty kind that he associates with. Is it Tain or Tain? Tain. T A I. Tain. I don't know who, who. I don't know who that is. I don't know him either. Someone yeah. who was popular at the time. But I mean, you could yeah. you could think of Hume. You could think of all kinds of empiricists. That sure. Sure. Probably make the same. Yeah. Yeah. He says, but a true empiricism is that which proposes to get as near to the original itself as possible, to search deeply into its life, and so by a kind of intellectual auscultation to feel the throbbing of its soul. And this true empiricism is the true metaphysics. And I found the line a kind of intellectual auscultation to be particularly interesting. Uh, Auscultation is what happens when you go to the doctor and they listen to your breathing with a stethoscope. Mm -hmm. Auscultation is a technique of listening to the sounds of the body to divine what is on the inside. Yeah. And I've and of course he's speaking metaphorically, but what he calls an intellectual auscultation that feels the throbbing of the soul. I'm like, well, that, that's a pretty good way of describing my understanding of Zen contemplation. And when he talks about it as a, uh, an intense, even violent experience, again, that's my experience. People who think that Zen contemplation, I mean, it's like a, it's a cliche in our language. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling real Zen. And people right. mean calm. It's like, oh, is, does that mean you're freaking out and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like que questioning everything. Are you in a, like a kind of a mental fugue state? That's, right. I mean, that's as likely to be a Zen hat f uh, frame of mind as, as uh, whatever they're talking about in the pages of Real Simple magazine or whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The, the thing about the, uh, the auscultation, it's a beautiful term. And I think that he, he used that somewhat obscure term because it was the best way of describing what he meant. At other points in the essay, he simply says that whereas... Um, bad metaphysics or metaphysics the way it's, you know, like wayward metaphysics, what it does, it goes from concepts to things, much like we do in everyday life. We have a mm -hmm. practical mindset. We need our concepts to know what things are, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're driving, it's not a time to auscultate whatever the real, right. it's a time to think in terms of conceptual thinking. Oh, there's, you know, no. e but even there in, in driving, there's a kind of durational kind of real quality we could talk about, but whatever. The thing is that uh, he says that Rather than starting from concepts and trying to fit the things we see into those concepts, we should see things directly and let new concepts emerge. Yes, and it's almost exactly. comical. At one point, he says that the true metaphysician, I'm paraphrasing, but he says the true metaphysician comes up with concepts that are unique to each thing they see. Yeah. What is he saying? Is the, is the true metaphysician a kind of artist, a kind of poet? Because it certainly starts to look that way when you think through what he's getting at. He keeps coming back to the idea of fluid concepts. In my translation, that's the word. In French, he says concept fluid. So concepts that are liquid, concepts that aren't hard and, and solidified, but that are able almost in a kind of po poetic way, much like the symbol in the Jungian sense, adapt itself to, to the shifting nature of things. And to and that and the philosophy for Bergson is 
a kind of practice by which through an, an incredibly uh, intense, and he even says violent effort, one places themselves within duration, outside of the kind of conceptual prison of preconceived or received notions, and enters into the flow of the real. And he doesn't even say that this is a particularly rare state. He says that any real advance that's made in, in the sciences, in art, in philosophy, come from such moments of intuitive uh, gnosis. The philosopher will have a flash of intuition, see something, translate it into concepts necessarily. And then Bergson says he already becomes his own disciple when he does that. He basically becomes one of the commentators on the philosopher. And then, of course, a school will form around those insights. And the school is all conceptual, loses the initial into intuition yep. until another philosopher gets another flash. And again, anytime there's new blood that's poured into a, a, a system of thought, whether it's in art or philosophy or science, it's because someone somewhere reconnected with the original flow and came up with some new concept that was completely novel. And this interplay between conceptual, practical thinking and this kind of almost mystical, intuitive insight, uh, which is for Bergson a kind of true thought, a deeper form of thinking, it's constantly happening. This interplay is what's necessary for this universe, which Bergson elsewhere describes as a machine for making gods, functions. Right? Mm. One of the big questions hanging over this, and which clearly other philosophers uh, criticized uh, Bergson for is just the possibility that all intuition would be good for would be navel gazing. He writes, but if metaphysics is to proceed by intuition, if intuition has the mobility of duration as its object, and if duration is of a psychical nature, shall we not be confining the philosopher to the exclusive contemplation of himself? Will not philosophy come to consist in watching oneself merely live as a sleepy shepherd watches the water flow? And he says right away, no, absolutely not. And let me show you how. And yet I have to say, I find his demonstration of how intuition can serve philosophy slightly unconvincing, if only because all he does at that point is then pretty much just repeat the definition that he's just spent the essay building up between an intuition and analysis and the double motion of, well, I guess William James would call them intellectualists, people who take the concept for the thing to mm -hmm. be more real than the thing. Um, yeah. There's a kind of a double movement he describes um, where he's like, if you're, if you're looking for the, the meaning of durée, uh, you could either decide that you're going to proceed from the point of view of multiplicity, in which case the kind of empiricist that he doesn't think he is would want to find atoms tiny little indivisible molecules of experience, say if we're talking about the ego, the sense of self, the soul, the identity of a person, you say, well, let's go looking for it empirically in the succession of emotional and mental states. And the very word state is already assuming that these things possess a kind of immobility, Stasis, a fixity. Yeah. 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 As if they were like, those points on the line that an arrow draws in the air as it goes thunk into the chest of a French soldier. But 
just as those points are, as he points out, the points on the line, those aren't there in reality. We're putting them there because as human beings, as organisms, we need to understand durée from the point of view of immobility. And so we kind of interpose stationary points in order to make sense of motion. Even the um, space that in which these points exist, the space that subtends the kind of process we're studying is itself yeah. projected. Even that space yes. isn't real. Well, yes. And that's the second of the double motion yeah. that right. you can, the first of this double motion is to say, okay, I'm going to break this down into little molecules, little atoms. Uh, let's say we're talking about the all-consuming question about the human self. Where is the self? Does it even exist? Uh, the empiricist would say it exists in the succession of states. And the assumption there is that one such state, let's say anger or sleepiness, um, or the idea of transitivity. I don't know. These are just different things that it wants to treat these things as these little monads that are not susceptible to change. They're just endlessly remixable. You can click them together in different combinations as if you were making something out of Legos, yep. but the Legos themselves, those primal blocks don't change. And so this is one way of trying to apprehend durée from the point of view of fixity, mobility from the point of view of immobility, which he says is what we human beings naturally do. Um, but he finds this very unsatisfying, partly for a reason that William James rejects the same philosophy in Principles of Psychology, which is that every state of emotion or thought is necessarily conditioned by everything that has come before it, yeah. which means that every mental state, so-called, is in fact uh, unique. New. There's, yeah. 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 So just as you say, from the point of view of absolute reality, there's no such thing as the jab. Likewise, from the point of view of absolute reality, there's no such thing as um, anger or, you know, the anger. Right. Uh, but the, the, that's like our bright idea. And then from that point of view, the empiricist seeks soul or self or ego in the gaps between these things, yeah. uh, in some kind of, uh, invisible connect logic of connection. And he, he says, the problem is that they keep kind of going deeper into these little voids, these little gaps, trying to find bridges to that void, and he says, this is as if you tried to understand the Iliad simply by reading the spaces between the letters. Right. You're missing you're the just, point. You're yeah. just completely missing a point. But then the other motion, which he associates with idealism, you, in, in this case, you're saying you're proceeding not from the idea that durée is a multiplicity, but that it's a unity. And then you say what matters is not these little monads, the, uh, but the, the, the line that we can place them on as like a, like a string of pearls. We're interested in the string, not the pearls. Right. And he says then from this point of view, durée is actually takes on the appearance of motionless eternity. He says, but both perspectives actually kind of do the same thing. They're both ways of getting away from what is. And getting back to where all this started, God knows how long ago, where he says, are we just condemned to a kind of meditation, a kind of con contemplative life? And he says, no, 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 because an insight into intuition and durée 
has given me the proper metaphysics by which I can distinguish these two erroneous motions. And from these two erroneous motions come all of the pseudo problems and pitched battles, all of them uh, fruitless quarrels right. between the various schools of philosophy, the realists and the idealists and so on. And, and I guess he could say, well, that's not nothing. It's, this has given me the vantage point from which I can understand where philosophy has gone wrong. Right. But then that doesn't, but that still leaves something like, okay, but then what, you know, that's a negation, but then what do you do with this? Well, there's, he's doing something else with that in that passage. Cause he's also arguing there because at one point he says in the very beginning, when he's trying to illustrate what, or to explain what durée is, what duration is, he says, we all have one example, at least of duration. That's our own selves. We know that we don't skip from one static state to another. We experience our, ourselves as a kind of ever unfolding uh, process of, of, of living. Uh, we see that, that our memories add up and that even if we do the same thing for five minutes in a row, each minute, the memory of the last minute changes whatever it is we're doing. So that every time, let's say that you, if you're chopping broccoli, well, every, every, every stroke of the knife is slightly different because it comes after the others. Even if everything yeah. else is the same, there's that accumulation of time, that accumulation of, of becoming that makes each one unique. So we all have an experience of of duration. And in this passage, what he's this one of the things he's doing is he's saying, well, so does that condemn us to be solipsists? Does it condemn the philosopher to only kind of experience their own duration? Because there's only you you don't have access to any other one. And what he's saying, and this is really interesting, he says that no, because if you truly, through your own effort, enter into that intuitive uh, state where you experience the real, you will experience not just a unity of becoming, just not just yourself living, you will experience a kind of multiplicity of, of, of durations all around you. For instance, if you think of the color orange, you don't even have to see it. If you just think of the color orange, your thought of orange already contains its, within itself yellow and red. It is in itself a movement from yellow to red. So, and just like you, when you experience yourself as a duration, you automatically, intuitively experience all these other durations happening around you. So what he's saying is that your you thought doesn't stop when you start when you enter into this flow. And actually that's where thought begins. You start to intuit uh, the absolute reality in an absolute way. And then you can develop concepts from there that um, call us to that absolute. So it's like anything yeah. but you, uh, a waste of time to do this uh, for Bergson. Well, you know, and it's, and it's interesting because the shape of the, you know, the thrust and parry of arguments around this Bergson enjoining a new discipline of metaphysics and uh, based on intuition and his philosophical critics complaining that that leaves philosophers with nothing to do. And then the counter response that uh, Bergson gives anticipating that objection, which you've just very ably summarized, you know, this, again, just reminds me of the developmental arc of Zen, where there's that extraordinarily simple intuition, simple, and yet it takes enormous discipline and patience to ever arrive at it. And that thing always feeling like it is 
beyond words. I mean, because it is, it is beyond words. And yet somehow those who manage to take that leap into intuition, when they come back, they can't shut the fuck up. They can't right. stop talking. Right. You know, look right. at, you know, like the two fat volumes of Dogen's Shobogenzo sitting on my bookshelf, like the entire enormous literature of commentaries and commentaries on commentaries and commentaries on commentaries on commentaries in the Zen tradition, all of them seeming to perform the cyclical kind of uh, regeneration and degeneration where there's the original enlivening intuition and there's the new concepts that that fertilizes. And then there's the aging and sentences of those concepts as they become reified as successive generations of thinkers or, you know, Zen Buddhists or whatever, then treat those things as we always do from the point of view of immobility, at which point someone else has to perform that exemplary act of intuition to freshen it all up again. It's almost like uh, what we're talking about is the vocation of philosophy conceived on a long timeline, where you see some philosophers as simply inhabiting a, a, a sort of Bergsonian role of reminding us of the freshness and vividness of reality as such, while always... Uh, because of the nature of reality as such, never nailing it down and therefore always leaving things open for these endless cycles of uh, regeneration and degeneration. Right. Um, the, it's, it's like, not only that, but I think Bergson would say that any philosophical idea must begin in this space, even if it's mm. the philosophical idea as a negation of Bergsonianism. If it's good, it's because it was born there. And uh, that, that it's not just Zen, um, although Zen might be a pretty uh, systematized way of attaining this state, that this is the state from which all creation emerges. Yeah. And um, just to tie everything together here, I'll just read a little paragraph where he brings it all home. He says, uh, he's describing the, the bad way of seeing things, blah, 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 um, thinking through fixities and mobilities and variabilities, blah, blah. Then he says, it is altogether different if one places oneself directly by an effort of intuition in the concrete flowing of duration. To be sure, we shall find no logical reason for positing multiple and diverse durations. Strictly speaking, there might exist no other duration than our own, as there might be no other color in the world than orange, for example. But just as the thought of color, which would harmonize inwardly with orange instead of perceiving it outwardly, would feel itself caught between red and yellow, would perhaps even have beneath the latter color a presentiment of a whole spectrum in which is naturally prolonged the continuity which goes from red to yellow, so the intuition of our duration, far from leaving us suspended in the void as pure analysis would do, puts us in contact with a whole continuity of durations which we should try to follow either downwardly or upwardly. In both cases, we can dilate ourselves indefinitely by a more and more vigorous effort. In both cases, transcend ourselves. So the, the idea is that through intuition, we transcend the limitations of binary dialectical thought altogether. We reconnect with the real. And from there, we come up with new thoughts, new actions, new plans, new ways of living. That's basically what he's saying.
at the end of the essay, he says that this way of looking at things, this way that he's propounding here, is eminently modern. He says it is a, an absolute transcendence of the limitations of antique thought, of ancient thought. And he says that the problem with scientists today is that they're not nearly modern enough. They still think like the ancients. They still think in terms of fixities and immobilities, even though their science, and this is the mark of modern science for Bergson, their science uh, privileges motion over stasis, becoming over being, etc. When Galileo decides to measure the fall of an object, of a body in space, instead of seeing high and low as archetypes and seeing how, trying to figure out how the object gets from high to low, how it jumps from one to the other, he actually measures the space. He discovers Bergsonian flow. That's what Galileo yeah. did. And, and mm -hmm. the problem is that we're not, we, because uh, thinking conceptually comes so natural to us, it's so uh, ingrained in us because it's, we've evolved to do it, because we need to do it to make practical use of, the, of our environments and to survive. It's very easy to slip back constantly into that, um, and into that limited mode and therefore to lose the true genius of the modern for Bergson. So, so Bergson is trying to say, I want to develop a meta. And he said this, he said this to Deleuze in a letter, I believe. He says, I'm trying to make a philosophy for science. I'm trying to give science the metaphysics that it constantly, tacitly endorses. It hasn't been able to formulate its own philosophy. So this is an incredibly um, modern uh, philosophical system that he's presenting us. And... I think um, now, reading it now, an incredibly problematic uh, system that he's offering us for reasons that we can, that I'd like to explore. But I want to first say that I love this text by Bergson and I have a tremendous like sympathy for that point of view. And I think that, that the philosophies of process and becoming are like fundamental to any type of appreciation of reality. I totally agree with all that. But there's always this one niggling thing that's always bothered me, but for a long time, I just kind of ignored it or shoot it off. It's that if the world is actual, pure becoming, constant change, constant flux with no moment ever repeated, how does conceptual thought arise from it at all? Right. And that is a huge problem when you decide to like kind of focus in on it. It, like when I was trying to read Plato again last year, one of my, my main goal was to figure out, well, Plato looked at things in the opposite way. So what does he say about becoming, right? What does he say about these things? And there's a dialogue called the Theotetus where um, uh, Socrates is arguing against the Heraclitian flux idea. And he says, well, if everything was absolute flux, how would we know it? And of course, the thing is that if everything was absolute flux, we could not know it because perception and knowledge would be one and the same. And therefore, there'd be no way of coming up with a new concept because no two states would correspond to the same concept. You'd have a separate idea for each event and there'd be no way to say anything about anything. And I think that this is really actually important because this is where the weird comes in. In a way, if everything is pure flux, it's not that weird. It's just weird that we're aware of it. Um, in fact, it's inexplicable that we're aware of it. So how do we reconcile this process philosophy with an appreciation for the fact that we can know the world to be such in a way that would at least account for 
the repetition of certain states in this world. Mm. And I think that sometimes he's being actually unfair. Um, for instance, he'll say that we develop concepts by comparing things. So we see, imagine seeing a face on a screen and the face goes from a calm expression of calm to an expression of terror. So you think, right. okay, well, oh, that's an expression of terror. I know that because it looks like this other face that was afraid because it got, you right. know, and then this other, and then, um, so terror becomes the concept we associate with a particular facial expression. But of course, that's not what terror is only. Um, I've experienced terror in my life, not many times, but a couple of times. Uh, let's say I face a bear, which has happened to me. So terror strikes my heart. Um, I know that it's terror. I know that it's fear, but I'm not comparing it to any other instance of terror in my life. Maybe a year before I saw the bear, I almost got into a car accident and I felt terror there. In the moment that I feel the bear, when I think back on those moments, it's very clear that I was feeling the same emotion, even though the situation was different. I'm not, uh, even me in my own duration, experience a certain uh, universality of, of states, even though I am more aware than anybody ever could be of the absolute singularity of each instance. Why do I use the word terror as the perfect word to describe how I felt when I saw the bear and when I almost got in the accident? I don't think Bergson can account for that. I don't think that process philosophies in general can account for it. Mm -hmm. And that makes a difference for me. I don't know. I, sus I suspect Bergson was at least aware of the problem because on a couple of occasions in this essay, he says quite directly, consciousness and memory are for all intents and purposes one and the same. Yes, something apprehended without memory is not, it's just an instantaneity. It's not part of any kind of pattern. And clearly we have patterns. Um, I would agree that he doesn't really address the question. It's a pretty fundamental question. I can come up with a somewhat glib postmodern answer to it. I think there would, uh, I don't know if it's glib, but at least um, the fact that I thought of it makes me think that it's glib, put it that way. If human beings need fixity in order to understand the world around them and therefore abstract fixed points from fluid durée or, uh, you know, or whatever, we've given us several examples already, then you can say that the, the grammar of things, the grammar of emotions, the, 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 or the vocabulary of emotions, the fact that you would use the word terror for both a car accident and, a, and, and uh, seeing a bear, those are connections that we are making within the language world. So it's as if we are erecting a whole separate world on top of the world of durée. And the world of durée is sort of like a subterranean stream that sort of trickles along. And every now and then some valiant spelunker goes down and actually apprehends that, that deep subterranean stream. But for the most part, though our world is on top of that and all of the parts of that world re relate to each other, not to that stream flowing underneath. That being said, if that's the case, then intuition just feels like, uh, like a tourist destination, like a cool thing that you, you might be able to do with your mind. Um, and you might like, or you can drop a tab of acid and you can trip out on the reel or whatever. And indeed that is, very often how people view this sort of thing. 
but from my perspective, that's uh, that's a limited view. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with that, because I do agree with Bergson that the absolute, and he a number of times says that intuition renders to us absolute knowledge. To put it in terms of absolute and relative, that the absolute nourishes the relative. That that a subterranean stream, to continue that metaphor, is like a is like a well. Um, or, or like it, it wells up and, and nourishes the surface of the earth and nourishes all the human communities built upon the face of the earth. I agree. The, the question then is, how does that conceptual topsoil that you've described, that world that we, act, that we live in mentally, how would it sustain itself on top of a flux of absolute becoming? For instance, he, when he, his example of thinking of the color orange and immediately intuiting the tension between red and yellow that orange is, what determines... I have to say, I, have to say, I thought that was a bad example. I well, stared at that passage for a long time. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Oh, I thought that was a fantastic example. Because I, 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 it would never occur to me to, to look at an orange and think, you know, this is actually somewhere on a spectrum between red and yellow. That, looking at an orange never makes me think about red and yellow. That's not, no, that's in not, fact, that's... No, not conceptually, because you're thinking in terms of orange as its own thing. But he's claiming that in entering into the color orange intuitively, you will feel not just yellow and red, but the full spectrum of color, that you will actually get that. That's his claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, but that would, that would imply that there's some necessary law that establishes what a color is and how one color becomes another. And those mm. have to be stable across time or else the, in a world of absolute yeah. becoming, yellow could turn to blue. It could turn to any color. Right. What makes orange exist in this tension between yellow and red, wh- whether or not one could actually intuit that. And also- are, are, are we back with the fundamental question that always comes up when we talk about Miesu? No, I, I wasn't going there. I wasn't going there at all. Um, that, no, but, I, but, it, but it just reminded me, because that was another thing we talked a lot about a few years ago. So Miesu says that there's no, in a nutshell, I'm vulgarizing what he says, but like that there is no necessary being in the universe, but the absence of a necessary being. Right. Ka- chaos, in other words. And he yeah. posits hyper-chaos as this kind of uh, almost Lovecraftian... Um, kind of engine of reality, that anything can happen or not happen at any time for any reason. So then the big question is, well, yeah, but then why, why doesn't it? Then why do we actually have a fairly stable universe that seems to have manifested uh, out of this unstable flux? Right. It does seem to me to be actually somewhat parallel to the question that we're considering here. Yeah, uh, he's arguing against the what's called the principle of sufficient reason, which is the philosophical idea that there is an absolute necessity to reason, that everything has a cause, in other words. And right. Bergson is 100% invested in the principle of sufficient reason, 100%. Just like any process philosopher, it's all about the principle of sufficient. It's all about how one thing leads to another. Becoming is a causal process. And um, against the philosophies of becoming, Mayasu is arguing for uh, a philosophy of absolute fixity, where an entire universe with the complexity that we observe could just sprout into being for no reason all of a sudden and vanish the next moment for no reason. He's arguing mm-hmm. for the total absence of the principles of sufficient reason, which means that is, according to his except, philosophy... Except chaos. 
It's except that there's the asterisk, right? You know, it's well, it's sort of like saying it's if this has come up again and again in our conversations is uh, is hyper chaos just a rebranded kind of god? You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, he he actually describes it very much like a god. Yeah. Um, but it's a god that is unbound by reason. Is all right. So uh, what he's saying is, in hyper chaos, it's just the name he gives to the absence of causal necessity in this universe. Right. So, and Bergson is thinking in terms of absolute necessity, right. just like William but, James, but both, just like... But both are talking about a certain kind of instability, a certain right. kind of flux and instability. And in both, however different their philosophical systems might be, the question is left to us. Yeah, but if you're telling us that this is the bedrock of reality, whether you're saying it's hyper chaos or whether you're saying it's durée, then... How is it that any human thought can survive long enough to systematize itself into right. well, fucking language and right. you know, the civilization that you see around you? Exactly. The, the same problem occurs. Bergson has no solution to the problem. Mayasu presents a solution to the problem. So Mayasu's solution to the problem is that the minute you say it's unlikely that there would be a stable universe if there was no necessity for a stable universe... The minute you say that, you're projecting the principle sufficient reason behind the universe. You're insisting again on the on the principle that was just rejected. So mm -hmm. you're it's a it's a vicious circle. So you can say, well, if there is no reason for anything to be the way it is, then it is as likely that this universe would emerge as it is that any other universe would emerge, including the weird, this most hellish, chaotic landscape or the most placid, steady state you could imagine. They're all equally likely because probability, the very concept of probability only makes sense within a system that already presupposes sufficient reason or else you have no probabilities. So that's, that's his... I think, ingenious solution to that problem. That doesn't mean I buy it, okay? But it's an ingenious <laughs> but it solution. But it is very clever. Yeah. It, it is. It, it's, it's more than clever. I think it's actually quite insightful, uh, even though I wouldn't stop there. I think it's actually kind of essential. And you've brought this up yourself, uh, this argument, in different way, in different, using different words when we were talking about gambling. You were talking about the mm. time that the gambler inhabits is the time of hyperchaos. It's the time where the odds don't matter because the odds don't determine what happens next. That's yeah. exactly what Mayasu is getting at. Yeah. But to get back to Bergson, Bergson doesn't like Plato. Deleuze doesn't like Plato. Nietzsche doesn't like Plato. Nobody likes fucking Plato. Nobody in the modern world likes Plato. Plato needs to be rejected. In the name of what? In the name of modernity, in the name of science, in the name of... Uh, a non-human or extra-human or transhuman reality that doesn't answer to our petty little wishes, our petty little beliefs about how the world should be or how the world is. Plato is, is the ultimate anthropocentric thinker. The world is just the way it is for humans. That's the way the world is. And therefore, uh, all that needs to be rejected in order to embrace the pure, unbridled chaos of becoming in flux. And this feels very edgy for about a century. I... I'm tired of it because I don't see how it could work. I don't see how you could, I could relate two moments of fear or love in my life if there wasn't something like the fear, the love. If these archetypes didn't somehow subsist in a transcendent, imaginal sense, I don't know. If they didn't in a platonic way, if they didn't pre-exist, I don't know how the flux of becoming could take on the shape of a, a string of melody or a beautiful landscape, or a moment of meaning. 
I just don't understand how that could happen. Yeah. Well, the, the theory of forms is a pretty robust way mm -hmm. of answering that, that very basic question. Right. Um, you can think of other kind of philosophical gizmos as things that might help us. Uh, I'm certainly not going to gainsay Plato. Who would I be to gainsay Plato? Um, but we could add others like, for example, Alistair Crowley, one of my favorite people to bring up. A Platonist. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, he was a lot of things, right? Um, okay, so there's one passage in Bergson that reminded me of something that Crowley says. Only one passage, so it's not like I'm, I, I'm not saying that this whole essay is secretly Crowleyan, but the whole time I'm reading this, I kept noticing all kinds of um, resonances with mystical writings, mystical thought. Right. So one of the things that Bergson says about the relationship between concepts and intuition is not only that, you know, we can kind of go deep sea diving into the real and, uh, you know, refresh ourselves in intuition and then come back to the ordinary relative world of concepts so refreshed that we have new, exciting kind of concepts and new understandings of how concepts work. That certainly is one thing that he's saying. But he also wants to suggest an answer to the question of like, yeah, but how do you jump that gap? How do you, how do you vault over the void that separates intuition from the potentially infant number of snapshots or points of view of the object? How do you go from the infinity of views on the object to being the thing itself? Early on, he says, for example, that all of the snapshots of Paris would not replace the experience of the person who just lives in the city, right? Right. And he has some wonderful metaphors in his writing, and that's one oh, of he's, them. He's, the great thing about Bergson, uh, parenthetically, is that he doesn't write in a technical language. Anybody yeah. could read this. He's ultra clear. It's, mm -hmm. it's, doesn't, doesn't, it's, mean it's, doesn't mean it's easy. It's not it's easy, not, but, but he doesn't use jargon. Yeah, Almost never. Use, yeah. He doesn't use technical language. Yeah. But one way that he suggests concepts can serve intuition is the idea that you should take concepts, lots of concepts, opposed concepts, very different and juxtapose them. And that the this pileup of concepts can point towards the direction of the intuition, that it will never replace the intuition. That's the fundamental problem that he sees with the history of philosophy. But at one point he says... If a man is incapable of getting for himself the intuition of the constitutive duration of his own being, nothing will ever give it to him. Concepts no more than images. So that's kind of pointing at this gap, like concepts and images won't get you there. And if you can't find some other way to get there, you're not getting there. Right. Um, and then he goes on here. The single aim of the philosopher should be to promote a certain effort, which in most men is usually fettered by habits of mind more useful to life. Now the image has at least this advantage, that it keeps us in the concrete. No image can replace the intuition of duration, but many diverse images borrowed from very different orders of things may, by the convergence of their action, direct consciousness to the precise point where there is a certain intuition to be seized. Yeah. 
I was looking and at so the same passage. <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah. Diverse images borrowed from very different orders of things made by the convergence of their action, direct consciousness to the precise point where there is a certain intuition to be seized. So I just want to I just want to point out that there's a contrast here between concepts and images. He's yeah, bringing up I, a new which, I'm, which thing. I'm glossing over. Yeah. No, but it's important. I think I thought that's where you're going. Go on. Well, no, actually, what, before I get back to why I think Crowley has something to say on this, do explain the distinction you're making. Well, he's saying, what he's saying in, essentially is that a concept will never give you a thing. But images, which are not concepts, images, for instance, paintings, metaphors, poems, can point you to a particular uh, area of thought where if you're willing, you can connect with the real. So that's mm -hmm. what he's saying. It's like images through suggestion, through what Graham Harmon calls illusion in a technical sense. He has this beautiful concept of illusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. Images can guide us to our intuition, mm -hmm. and which is why for Bergson, reality, he says elsewhere, if we could see reality directly, we wouldn't need art. We need art to see reality. And that's the reason mm -hmm. why art is different from philosophy. In that sense. Right. I, in my rather messy way, uh, was to some extent conflating concepts and images in this. Yeah, he clearly is privileging images. But what he says about images, I think also could be said about concepts. So long so. as you engage with, I'm sorry? I think so too, yeah. So long as you're engaging with concepts in an active way as part of a practice that from the get-go understands the limits of concepts. And this is why I bring up Crowley. Yeah. Crowley says somewhere, I forget where, below the abyss, all concepts must be opposed. And the abyss is a figure from Kabbalism. The abyss is the, the void, the gap I've been talking a lot about voids and gaps here. Here's another one. Uh, between the top three sephirot of the tree of life and the bottom seven. And the top three are supernal. They're beyond uh, manifestation and beyond um, human cognition. And the, they are only accessible through mystical contemplation, through magical practice, uh, through into, and if I were to Bergsonize what Crowley is saying, through intuition. Right. And below the abyss is the world of concepts and images. It's the world of expressions of symbols in the sense that uh, Bergson is using the term tokens not the direct apprehension of the real that exists above the, the abyss, but the uh, web work of tokens for that real that exists below the abyss. But Crowley saying that all concepts are to be opposed below the abyss is a statement first of the relativity of concepts, that you're never going to find a concept where you're like, all right, call off the search. Yeah, it's We done. figured it out. It's done. Yeah, salt that one away. Uh no, that every concept can be opposed to something and indeed should be opposed. That every idea, for example, of moral righteousness that is dear to your heart, you either your heart, J.F. Martel, or you, the listener, or my heart, for that matter. We all have strong beliefs about how the world should be. But Crowley is asking us 
to engage in a practice, at least as I understand him, engage in a practice by which every such idea, you need to find a way to negate it, to engage in a kind of a dialectic. But the point of that dialectic is not some kind of Hegelian Aufhebung, right. um, where there's some concept at a higher order of abstraction that embraces those two and, and transcends them. Uh, what you're doing is you using concepts basically to ladder your way out of concepts. It's like an activity that you engage with below the abyss that ultimately gets you above the abyss. Or as Wittgenstein puts it at the end of the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus, he says, my propositions are elucidatory in this way. He who understands them finally recognizes them as senseless when he has climbed out through them, on them, over them. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up on it. He must surmount these propositions. Then he sees the world rightly. And then there's the famous, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Mm. And uh, mm. the idea is that you engage in this kind of like um, agon of the concepts, sitting, taking your most cherished beliefs and, and seeing its opposite and considering it as a, a viable uh, uh, alternative, seeing all these concepts defeat each other. In other words, uh, experiencing the total relativity of conceptual thinking. As James shows in his writings, every concept contains its own opposite, its own negation. That's what a concept is. You can only say something is white if you're saying it's not red, not, you know, not everything yeah. else. So it, right. it, it contains an element of negation. So they negate each other on some level. But once you've seen the total relativity of all concepts, you've actually settled into the absolute. You're in yep. this thing that transcends the conceptual. And it's yep. not like once you've battled all the concepts and all the concepts are dead on the battlefield, there's nothing left. The whole world is left. It's still there. The fucking exactly. sky is there. The sun is still shining. Your kids are still there. You know, your cat yeah. still needs to be fed. You don't lose a thing. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.